Hey everybody, it's Jason. Welcome or welcome back to the Mosaic Church Podcast. At the end of this podcast, please take a moment to connect with us on social media. It's a great place to learn more and to see what's happening at Mosaic. Most importantly, hope the following message encourages and inspires you to take a new step on your faith journey. Enjoy. Um, And we are continuing our series called Everyday Disciple. And as I was thinking about this, I I remember it like it was yesterday. As a matter of fact, even as I stop to consider it now, my palms still get a little bit sweaty and my heart starts to race a little bit faster. It happened about 10 years ago when I was employed for a Christian publisher in northern Colorado. At the time, I was working in their vacation Bible school department, and I served as a telephone sales and consulting representative. And so every year, I would literally take and receive thousands. I mean, when I say thousands, I mean thousands. We had to make 100 phone calls a day. Um, Yes, that was us. That was our team. Um, Literally hundreds and thousands of emails every year and phone calls to churches all across the country who are eagerly anticipating and planning their summer programming. On the fateful day in question, I received one such email from a volunteer VBS coordinator who asked a question that at the time I deemed to be kind of simplistic or rudimentary in nature. Amused by their seeming lack of knowledge, I decided that I would forward this email on to a fellow co-worker and have a laugh at this person's expense. However, not only did I just forward this email, I added commentary to it as well. And I said, and I quote, You're not going to believe this question that I just got from this customer. It's so stupid, I just want to slap them. And I hit send. Now, when my friend didn't respond immediately, which he was accustomed to doing, I decided that I was going to check the status of this email to make sure that it hadn't gotten hung up in our work servers. To my utter shock and horror, I came to the realization that I had not hit forward on that email button. I had accidentally hit reply. Panic-stricken by that moment, I feverishly began to try and hit the recall function on my computer to try and bring this email back. However, unbeknownst to me, when you recall an email in the computer system that we had, it didn't actually bring that email back. It just sent an email notification to the original recipient that I was trying to recall the email message that I had sent. So rather than just the original humiliating message that this customer received, Their inbox was literally filled with 30-plus emails that said, Nick Jonkowski is attempting to recall the email message. It's so stupid, I just want to slap them. Over and over and over again in their inbox. Talk about adding injury to insult. And when I finally recognized that my efforts to recall this email were in vain, I decided that I needed to bite the bullet and call the customer. And when they finally answered the phone, all I heard was sobbing on the other end of the line. My apology was way too late, 
And the damage had already been done in that moment. In fact, I remember as I sat there on the phone listening to this customer sob, I felt this pit begin to well up in my stomach. And for the first time in my young life, I realized that my initial lack of empathy and concern for the individual who resided on the other side of the keystrokes of a digital message had the potential to cause great harm and pain to a real-life flesh-and-blood person. Of course, now, I also learned the importance of checking before I forward emails, but that's a sermon for a different day. And I wish I could tell you this morning, church, that I learned my lesson that day. I wish I could tell you that from that moment forward, I sought to see every, uh, the humanity in every individual that I encountered in my digital communities. I didn't, and I haven't. In fact, in our society today, where the lines between our physical world and our digital worlds have progressively become more enmeshed and more entangled, I found it's a difficult task to know how to lovingly respond to those that I encounter in my digital spaces. Not only that, I struggle with what do I say, how do I respond to people that are in these digital places. And the truth is, I'm not sure what to do at times when I encounter these different people. And I imagine that if you're sitting here this morning hearing my voice, you've probably had the same occurrence. Now, you're probably super Christians. I'm sure there's probably some in the room that say we're super Christians. I would never, never think, Pastor, of responding to somebody that way. But I imagine that as you've been on social media, on internet forums, perhaps even in live game chat with other players, you've been tempted to or have responded in anger, frustration, or fear to those that you've encountered. And perhaps if you're sitting there and thinking rather smugly, perhaps, that, well, I've never actually typed or said anything to anybody, let me remind you that Jesus himself said that if you've ever had a hateful thought towards somebody, it is the same as committing murder towards that person. And you are not out of the woods yet. So as everyday disciples, the question becomes, how does God want us to respond to those people that we encounter in our digital neighborhoods? Thankfully, Jesus had a lot to say about this idea of neighbor. And his revolutionary teaching on the subject has as much importance for us today in our digital society as it did for his first century audience. So let's turn together and discover the truth from Luke chapter 10 in our Bibles in the story of the Good Samaritan, what Jesus had to say about this very timely and important topic. If you have your Bibles and you're turning there either on your phone or in your actual Bible, um, let me give you some quick cultural context of what is happening in our reading today beginning with the fact that Jesus' words to the first century audience would have been shocking in this moment. It's not a surprise that a lot of what Jesus said was shocking. Jesus often disoriented his listeners by his words, but this is particularly shocking to his audience because in this uh, cultural climate of Palestine in the first century, Jews and Samaritans absolutely despised one another, both racially and religiously, despite the fact that geographically they were neighbors. 
In fact, the intensity of hatred towards one another, both Jew towards Samaritan and Samaritan towards Jew, ran so deep that it's said that rabbis would tell a Jew or forbid a Jew to help a Samaritan woman that they might encounter who was in distress giving birth. Think about that. They come across a woman who is in distress giving birth to a child, and they said, you cannot help her because if you do and succeed, all you've done is to help to bring another Samaritan into the world. Ouch. Ouch. And as I was kind of thinking about that this week, I thought, you know, really, that's not all that different from the disdain that a Packers fan might have towards a Bears fan, or vice versa, right? I mean, despite the fact that y'all are are geographic neighbors, as I have been in Wisconsin, I have come to learn that there is no lack of loss of love for those teams, between those teams and the fans. And so this is the cultural context. This is the place where Jesus is delivering his parable on the Good Samaritan, and perhaps one of his most famous parables of all time. So let's pick up our story beginning in verse 25. It says, On one occasion, an expert of the law stood to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked, and who is my neighbor? Luke, it's interesting to note, writes that the motives with which this man approached, this expert of the law approached Jesus, were plainly displayed for all to see. Apparently, he was readily obvious to those that were in that position of watching this interaction happening between Jesus and this man, that this man was trying to justify his treatment of others by in turn getting Jesus to categorize either individuals or groups of people as his neighbor. And perhaps he did this for a multitude of reasons. Perhaps he did this simply because he wanted Jesus to identify his friends or perhaps even people that he thought were easy to love as his neighbor so that he could then say, I have done everything to rightly fulfill the law of Moses and I can stamp my passport for heaven. Because in this man's mind, everything hung on how broad or how limited a definition Jesus applied to the term neighbor. Now, make no doubt, in Jewish culture in the first century, Jews believed that they were called to love their neighbors. But they also believed that it was their duty before God to hate their enemies. And so everything in the end hung on who do you determine to be your neighbor and who do you determine to be your enemy. I love it, man, because true to Jesus' style, not only did he recognize this man's false motives, but he doesn't necessarily answer the man's question directly. Instead, Jesus kind of turns the table on this man and tells him a parable or a short story and invites the expert of the law into the conversation to discover for himself the truth of God's principle about neighbor. So let's read what he says beginning in verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, 
A man was going down from, Jericho to Jer- or from Jerusalem to Jericho. This man is a Jewish man. When he was attacked by robbers, these robbers stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road, a priest who was also a Jewish priest. And when he saw the man, he passed on the other side. So too, a Levite, who was also a Jew, when he came to the place and saw him, passed on the other side. But a Samaritan, and remember, Jews and Samaritans hated one another in this first century culture. As he traveled, the Samaritan, when he came to the man and saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, Look after him, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert of the law replied, The one who has had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. Now, I understand that with the parable like this of the Good Samaritan, one which Jared talked about this morning, that we have heard over and over again, if you've been in church for any amount of time, there is a temptation that when we encounter this passage of Scripture in the Bible to simply rush by it, or rather to just simply assume this is another of Jesus' many teachings about being nice to people, right? We think, Jesus, yeah, yeah, I get it. You said for yourself, be kind to others, Treat your others the way we want to be treated. Love your enemy as yourself and all that other stuff, yada, yada, yada. But for us to simply skim over the passage in this parable of the Good Samaritan or to try and reduce it to simply another religious duty is to miss the revolutionary teaching that Jesus is proposing in this parable. Because the truth is, as believers today, as we now have the full revelation of the gospel through Jesus Christ, the parable of the Good Samaritan is really the gospel message. Because the story itself, if you look at it, does not make sense unless you see Jesus in its words. The Samaritan is Christ. And it was those with eyes of faith, as we read through the story of the Good Samaritan, we see that not only is Jesus the Good Samaritan, but the man that was lying destitute on the side of the road, desperate for somebody to come along and save him, is us. It's me. It's you. We are that man. That is gospel. And it's interesting to note that as Jesus goes through and he's telling this story, he points to two specific people who walked by this man. And each of these men were religious leaders of their day. There was a priest and a Levite. And I think Jesus chose these men as examples for a couple of different reasons. But one of the reasons I think Jesus illustrates these men as examples who walked by was to make the point that when it comes to needing salvation, follow An empty religion cannot save you from your sin. It cannot and it will not. And so Jesus uh, continues on. He makes the point that these travelers passed him by. And so we find ourselves like this man where the pressures of the world, 
the sinfulness of our fallen nature, and even the conniving of the devil has jumped on every one of us and knocked us out with brass knuckles and left us for total ruin and death. But here's this. It's in the cross of Calvary that we find Jesus to be the greater Good Samaritan. Christ is the ultimate mercy giver. Christ is the ultimate neighbor. Christ is the greater priest who does not pass us by when he encounters us in our brokenness on the side of the road. He does not stand at a distance when he sees us in pain near a Perel dispenser trying to sanitize his hands. Jesus is the great and better Good Samaritan who comes to us in our brokenness when we're bloodied and beaten, gets down and puts his hands in the dirt. He's the same one who shed the blood on the cross of Calvary that we might find salvation in him. He's the one who was born in a barn because there were no places for him in the inn, who is also our Savior who goes to prepare a place for us in our Father's house. Church this morning, don't miss the echoes of Jesus in the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this recognition of Jesus in this parable of the Good Samaritan is of great value to our discussion on loving our digital neighbor. Because as Pastor Tim Keller once said, you will never be a radical neighbor for others until you see that you have been radically neighbored by Christ. Let me say that again. You will never become a radical neighbor for others until you see that you have been radically neighbored by Christ. In other words, church, this morning in our lives, until we come to a place where we have experienced, literally tasted, the depth and breadth of God's incredible love at the cross of Calvary, we will never be able to share that love of Christ with others. Until we see ourselves as the man in the position on the side of the road, helpless in need of salvation, we will never be able to offer that to others until we've experienced it in Jesus. And that holds true not only for people that we encounter in the physical world, but also those we encounter in the digital world. Because when we begin to perceive Jesus as this ultimate neighbor, we place ourselves in a position to begin to rightly discover the answer to the expert of the law's question. Who is my neighbor? Because in the parable of the Good Samaritan, we find Jesus, who is the ultimate Good Samaritan, smashes through our limiting human-constructed notions of neighbor as something that is defined by one's proximity to me or by a neighborhood or by a human boundary. Instead, according to Jesus' teaching in Luke 10, we find that God's people are not only called to recognize all as neighbor, but in fact that we are called to be, see ourselves as neighbor to all. And so we find that in God's kingdom principle, neighbor is both me and we. Neighbor in God's kingdom is both me and we. I am neighbor because Christ has been the ultimate neighbor to me. No longer is my ability to be a neighbor to others defined by where I grew up, by what job I have, or by who I know. Jesus has forever collapsed those social constructs that previously had restricted or categorized my positional status to be able to relate to others. Because now as a follower of Jesus, I find my identity and my self-worth in Christ alone. It's not defined by who I know. 
It's not defined by what I do. It's not defined by whether I hang out with people that don't look or talk like me. It's defined by Christ alone. And because of that, I now have the freedom, just like the Good Samaritan, to be neighbor to all. In God's kingdom, neighbor is both me and we. But here's the truth. For God's people, Jesus' clarification and really this expansion of our traditional understanding of the term neighbor in the parable of the Good Samaritan works as a two-way street. It has to. It has to in order for this principle to work. For just as I find my value and self-worth in Christ alone, so too must I see my neighbor through the same eyes, through the same lens of faith, with the same value and worth that my Savior sees them as well. Because after all, church, this is the principle that drove the Good Samaritan to action in the parable. Had he only in that moment perceived his own value, but did not perceive the value of the Jewish traveler as he passed him by, he would have just simply kept on walking and left that man to die bruised and beaten. And this is true not only for the man in Jesus' parable, but it's true for us today. As people who are called in God's kingdom to be neighbor to all, we would do well to recognize that Jesus died not only for me, but also for we. Just as I have immeasurable value in Christ, so too does every person I encounter, be that person I meet in the physical world or in the digital world. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus' revolutionary teaching on this idea of neighbor being both me and we has huge implications for who we choose to relate with and how our relationships with others are conducted. Not only, again, in the physical world, but for today's conversation, and perhaps even most importantly, given our digital society that we are all now engaged with, it has implications for how we choose to interact with those we meet in our digital communities. Because I know of no other place, unfortunately, in our lives today where we tend to most frequently lose sight of God's kingdom principle of neighbor than when we wade into the murky and very turbid waters of online community. It's in those social media interactions, in those internet forums that can begin to lead us down some very dark paths where we either forget or lose sight of our position and calling to be neighbor to all, where we begin to dehumanize others, or we get back to the business of creating categories that define individuals' place and being. Of course, we're not alone in this. The algorithms that they use on social media platforms only further our online echo chambers and steer us more towards digital feelings of tribalism. And as such, it's not uncommon in our digital interactions with others that we find ourselves moving from a place of God's kingdom principle of neighbor as being both me and we to a place of unholiness and a worldly principle of us and them. And so the truth is, church, this morning, that whenever I find ourselves, whenever we are interacting with our digital neighbors on social media, on the internet, whatever form we find them at, when we get to a place of thinking it's us versus them, our motives more closely embody that of the expert of the law than they do that of the good Samaritan. And you say, Pastor, how do you know this to be true? I know this to be true because I'm the worst offender of them all. 
I know that to be true because every time I get online, I am tempted or I do begin to act like the expert of the law and begin to ask Jesus for clarification. Who is and who isn't my neighbor, Lord? Every time I get online, I begin to get in that mentality of us versus them, or I'm tempted to begin to think us versus them. Y'all, I can tell you with the absolute clarity of mind that some of the most vile thoughts I have about other people happen in my online interactions with others. That and when I'm going through a roundabout with, with, with uh, Wisconsinites, but mostly when I'm online <laughs> is when that happens. <laughs> Equally disturbing is how quickly I label and I categorize others based solely on the content that they share or the comments that they make. And in the process of all my segregating and dehumanizing of my digital neighbors, I forget the fact that Jesus has called me not only to be neighbor to all, but that all are neighbor to me. And that means something very important. It doesn't mean that, that, that their value is somehow diminished or that they are not neighbor to me because they vote differently than me. It doesn't mean that they are not neighbor to me because they somehow propose or uplift a value that are different than mine. It doesn't mean that they are not neighbor to me if they have a different sexual orientation. It does not mean that they are not neighbor to me if they don't root for my football team. In God's kingdom principle of neighbor being both me and we, every person has value and measurable worth in the eyes of Christ, just as I do. And that is why neighbor is both me and we. And so that means something for us, church. It means that as we engage in our digital communities, as we begin to engage others online, we need to do so by practicing conscious and mindful Christianity. We don't log on to Facebook and simply turn off our minds. Nor, when we get onto social media, our call to stop being disciple makers doesn't stop. When I get onto Facebook, when I log onto Instagram or Snap, whatever it may be where you find your interactions with others, the call to be disciple maker does not end there. Instead, I suggest that we should purposely see our digital communities as an extension of God's mission to share the gospel to all corners of the world and for making disciples of Jesus Christ. And when we adopt that framework, when we adopt that viewpoint, we're adopting the kingdom principle that God is active and present in the digital world just as much as he is in our physical world. Because as Psalm 139.7 says, I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. Let me ask you something, church. Do you believe that this morning? Do you believe that the God we serve is present everywhere at all times, active and moving on mission to redeem his creation? Do you believe that? If so, then we believe that there is nowhere in the entirety of creation that our God is not active and moving, including our relationships with our digital neighbors, including those people that we encounter online. And the parable of the Good Samaritan reinforces these boundaries, these ideas that there are no boundaries or when it comes to our calling to be neighbor to all and that all are neighbor to us. In God's kingdom, neighbor is both me and we. So look, I get it. It sounds good theoretically, right? It sounds really good, but this is one of those things that it's easier said than done, right? 
I think we can sit here this morning and say, I understand mentally that God has called me to be neighbor to all and that all are neighbor, neighbor to me. But it is a very different thing entirely when we try to actually live that out in our interactions with people online. I mean, let's be honest this morning, church, for a moment. The internet sucks. It's, it's terrible. I mean, it, it, there is so much divisiveness and there is so much vile human thought and emotion when we get online. It is hard, I, and I recognize this for myself, it is hard to see neighbors being both me and we when somebody's posting an article that's calling me an idiot for the way I voted. It's hard to love my neighbor as Christ has loved me as the ultimate neighbor when an individual or a group of people are taking something that I uh, value, that I highly esteem, and are labeling that as racist, fascist, or phobic. It is hard to love my neighbor and see neighbor as me and we and not rage quit on a video game when a 12-year-old starts talking trash because they beat me in Call of Duty. Not that I know that from personal experience. In those moments, when I'm caught up in those interactions with my digital neighbors online and and in the network society that we live in, I feel like I most closely embody that expert of the law and I ask Jesus, are you sure that person's really my neighbor, Lord? Are you sure, Lord, that you mean that person is really my neighbor? But as the Jesus parable makes clear, there are no limits or boundaries to neighbor in God's kingdom. Just as the good Samaritan was neighbor to the despised Jewish traveler, so too are we called to be neighbor to all, and as all are neighbor to us. So let me pose the question then. How this morning, church, do we walk out of here and begin to practically put into our Christian lives this idea of living neighbor as being both me and we as we get onto social media, Facebook, whatever it may be? How do we actually do that? Well, Heidi Campbell and Stephen Garner thoughtfully address this very question in their book, Networked Theology. And they advance the argument that when we find ourselves at a place of not knowing how to respond to people that we encounter online, that we can more fully move towards embracing God's neighbor principle of me and we when we begin to think of ourselves and others as Imago Dei. Who's here heard of the term Imago Dei? Okay, we got a few. It's a Latin term that actually means image of God. And it's actually a theological term within our faith that means that mankind is created in the image of God. And thus, as being created in the image of God, every human being has inherent worth and value as well as the unique ability to reflect and connect with their Savior. Of course, as God's people... The gospel only heightens our understanding of Imago Dei. Not only do we, are we people who reflect God's image, but according to the gospel, God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, to die for every one of us, that any who call on his name in faith may be moved from a position of death and dying on the side of the road to a position of son or daughter of the Most High. And when we embrace that position and that understanding of Imago Dei in the gospel, that means that those people that we encounter online, yes, that one digital neighbor who gets online and is constantly popping off on social media about political rants, they are Imago Dei. That means that one digital neighbor 
who is always and constantly bragging, humble bragging about their hashtag blessings in life, they are a Mago Day. And yes, that even means that that one digital neighbor who just blows up your social media feed with pictures of their stupid cat, they too are a Mago Day. And this application of stopping and asking God to help us think of ourselves and others as Imago Day has huge implications for us and our digital neighbors. First, as we begin to ask God, Lord, help me to see myself as one who bears your image, we allow ourselves to um, ask the Holy Spirit then to come in and guide us and our thoughts and our interactions and whether or not they accurately represent our position as God's image bearers. When I think of myself as Imago Dei, that means does my self-image, do my actions, do my interactions accurately represent that I am an image bearer of the King? It would be like me walking in this morning a diehard Broncos fan wearing a Las Vegas Raiders jersey. Uh, No, no, no. I don't want that. That's not me. That's not who I am. In fact, I would say, Tyler, that none of us want to be that unless it's you. <laughs> when we begin to position ourselves to see each other as, as ourselves as Imago Day, we allow the Holy Spirit to begin to lovingly convict and guide our actions and whether or not we are representing our image as Christ. Second, as we seek to help our, uh, view our digital neighbors as Imago Day, we again allow the Holy Spirit to begin to lead and direct our thoughts and actions towards others as being equal image bearers, as somebody who has value, eternal value in the eyes of Jesus. And so think about it this way. If I have something in my possession that I consider to be of great value, of incredible value, what am I going to do with that thing? I'm going to take care of it, right? I'm going to give that thing all the love, all the protection, all the care that it so rightly deserves. So then I ask you this morning, church, if we have this theological foundation idea of Imago Dei, that every human being that God entrusts with us as we encounter them in our physical realities and our digital realities, if we believe that every one of those human beings has inherent worth in the eyes of the Savior, why then do we take license to treat them like trash online? Does their value diminish because they're on Facebook? Does their value as God's image bearers diminish because they're on Xbox Live? Of course not. They have eternal value as God's image bearers in every arena of life, just the same as I do and just the same as you do. So when you're not sure about how to respond when you encounter somebody online, I encourage you this week to stop and ask God to help you think Imago Dei. Because when we do that, We seek to not only respond from a position as an image bearer of the king, but we also rightly recognize that we're responding to those who are also image bearers as well. And when we do so, we recognize like the Good Samaritan that we are not, there are no boundaries or limits to our being neighbor to others. And we can go through life as the Good Samaritan did down the road of life with our eyes wide open to every individual who may be lying on the side of the road, bruised and beaten, looking for someone to be a good neighbor to them. When we embrace the idea of God's kingdom principle of me and we, that I am neighbor to all and all are neighbor to me, we move away from this idea and worldly principle of us 
and them. So this week, I challenge you, church, see yourselves and see others with the inherent value and worth that they have in Christ. Once again, thank you so much for listening. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to connect with you at our weekend gathering for service time, directions, and to learn more about our vision to ignite a movement of love that transforms our community and the world. Visit us at mosaicwi.com.